Hello, and welcome to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I'm Dan Burke, your host and movie critic, and you're listening to Words on Film on WBCALP Boston. I will be reviewing some of the newest movies out right now. This week I was able to review four brand new movies, uh, three that came out the weekend of July 1st. 2022 and one that came out the weekend before that that I didn't actually get to review until now for for the show for you I'm actually surprised I wasn't able to review more films because the weekend of July 1st through July 3rd is technically 4th of July weekend which I would imagine people who are releasing films would exploit especially considering that the the new Thor movie is coming out not the weekend of July 1st through July 3rd. It's actually coming out the next weekend, the week of July 8th through July 10th. So obviously I haven't seen that movie yet, but I will see that for you, sort of a sneak preview of what's coming up next on next week's show. But first, the first movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Minions, The Rise of Gru. This is the second of the Minions films. The first one came out, if you can believe it, back in 2015. And it is the fifth in the Despicable Me franchise. And it is a new release from Sony Pictures Animation Studio Illumination. And this is definitely their signature cartoon characters. They're the ones that were side characters in the original, well, actually the first three Despicable Me films, and they are not going anywhere anytime soon unless people get sick of them, like I've been. <laughs> to, to put it bluntly, I saw the original Despicable Me. I thought the minions were funny for what they were. Did I want to see a whole movie dedicated to them? No. But I did see the minions film from 2015, which co-starred Sandra Bullock as their first supervillain that they wanted to follow, and I thought it was pretty good. Minions The Rise of Gru, I think, has some good ideas, but overall, I've been feeling a lot like many other critics have said with the sequels that have been coming out to, for example, Jurassic World, Jurassic World Dominion. It just feels like this is a summer of retread sequels, and Minions The Rise of Gru is probably the most guilty of all the retreads. So this movie takes place in 1976, which is actually eight years after the events of the first Minions film. And Gru, the supervillain who's played by Steve Carell in the Despicable Me movies, is 11 years old. And in this movie, he's also voiced by Steve Carell. And he allows the Minions... <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Ugh, congestion. But anyway... Gru allows the minions to work for him as their new leader. And Gru is aspiring to be a member of a group of supervillains, let's call them a supervillain supergroup, known as the Vicious Six. It was a gang of sorts that was founded by an, old, an older gentleman, uh, sort of an old school supervillain by the name of Wild Knuckles, who in this film is voiced by Alan Arkin. And by the time the Vicious Six make a name for themselves in the mid-70s, they are also joined by a disco diva-themed superhero by the name of Bell Bottom, who's played by Taraji P. Henson, a muscular supervillain with big metal gauntlets whose name is Stronghold, and he's voiced by Danny Trejo. There's also 
a Swedish roller skating themed supervillain by the name of Zvengeance, who's voiced by Dolph Lundgren. There is a Frenchman stereotype supervillain with a big lobster craw whose name is Jean-Claude. Claude spelled C-L-A-W-E-D, like a lobster claw. And he's voiced by Jean-Claude Van Damme. And last but not least, there's also an elderly nun who is a, a supervillain with, nun, with nunchucks. And she is named Nunchuck, pun definitely intended. And she is voiced by Lucy Lawless. Now, of these six supervillains, only Wild Knuckles and Bellbottom get the most character development. The other four, Strongholds, Vengeance, Jean-Claude, and Nunchuck, are basically just there as puns. Once they're introduced ironically, either they're named after bad puns or they're ironic supervillains, like for instance, a nun being a supervillain, that sounds like a great idea, but once the story gets going, they're regulated to back characters, which I really think is too bad. And also, Dolph Lundgren and Jean-Claude Van Damme, even though they're more known for their action films, and Danny Trejo in addition to that, although Danny Trejo's had some range ever since he's become a household name, but Dolph Lundgren and Jean-Claude Van Damme have been mainly action hero actors, and they might not be seen as somebody having a lot of range, but I think this movie does actually a disservice to them by just having them be background characters with puns for names. And I feel even worse for Lucy Lawless, who's the voice of a nun. And Lucy Lawless is also more of an action TV star, as she's been best known for being Xena Warrior Princess. But having her just be a nun and just having that be her character is also doing a disservice to her as well. Of course, it's great that Taraji P. Henson gets sort of center stage here, but I feel like if you have a group of supervillains that's a supergroup, all of them should get some screen time. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen. But as I said, the supervillain Gru, uh, voiced by Steve Carell, receives an invitation from the Vicious Six to join them, even though he's 11 years old. And they ultimately stab Wild Knuckles, Alan Arkin's character, in the back, even though he started the supervillain supergroup. And even though Gru's interview goes poorly, he manages to steal a stone that's capable of turning anyone into one of the animals of the Chinese Zodiac by the Chinese New Year in 1976. And I think that the movie works best when Gru actually teams up with Wild Knuckles as sort of a back and forth between the remaining members of The Vicious Six. But as I said previously, The Vicious Six had a lot of very promising, promisingly funny characters, but they ultimately fell short. And also, this movie is called Minions, and the Minions do take center stage, but when you have characters as diverse and as potentially interesting as The Vicious Six... I really didn't find myself caring that much about the Minions. Also, as I was leaving the theater, there was somebody there who was taking a survey about who was our favorite Minion. And I don't think that's really the point of the film, but unfortunately, I do think that Sony and Illumination Studios just put the Minions there to sell toys. As a matter of fact, I, I know that some of the Minions have 
different eyes than the others. Some of them are different heights, but I honestly can't tell the difference between any of them. And frankly, I don't care. They're just little yellow sperm cells. And I, I, I know that they're speaking this combination of Japanese, English, and Spanish, which I call Jap Spanglish. But other than that, and making, you know, fools out of themselves, I really didn't care about them. And I thought that they were there just to entertain the really, really little kids in the audience. So I do think that critics make some valid points about this summer being a summer of retreads and sequels nobody asked for. And some sequels this year, especially the recent Doctor Strange film, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, uh, were particularly disappointing. Minions The Rise of Gru is even more disappointing because it's kind of the same thing over and over again. And when you had characters that are just regulated to background characters, you don't really, or potentially interesting characters that are just regulated to background characters, you don't really care about the story. And I actually found myself nodding off during this film, a film that I never thought I would nod off through. Also, the original Minions film from 2015 took place in the 60s. This one takes place in the 70s. I have the feeling that this movie is going to do exactly what the X-Men prequels, starting with X-Men First Class and X-Men Days of Future Past, did. It started out, you know, in the 60s, and then the next one took place in the 70s, only to open up another sequel that was lackluster that took place in the 80s, and then there's the the notorious Dark Phoenix film that took place in the 90s, and it's just stretching out these sequels, and no one asked for that. So while the Minions The Rise of Gru wasn't a terrible film, Minions The Rise of Gru does get a strikeout because I feel like this franchise is getting really tired, and it's not unusual for a film in its fifth movie to get tired. But I expected better given the interesting characters in this film, as well as the unique and very colorful animation. But I do dread the next Minions film that comes out that takes place in the 80s. But if it's good, I'll give it a pass. But somehow, based on the results of this film, I doubt it. back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Mr. Malcolm's List. When I mentioned this film on my segment, What's Coming Up Next, last week, I mentioned that this was an original story, and that's not entirely correct. It is actually, I, I said that the screenplay was written by Suzanne Elaine, and it was, However, Suzanne Elaine also wrote the book upon which Mr. Malcolm's List is based, which is also of the same name, and that came out in early 2009. So it's been out for a little while, and it is definitely one of those films that is mistakable for a Jane Austen story. I heard one movie critic, Ty Burr, refer the, to this as Jane Faustin, and that's really not uh, too far off. 
But very much like the very popular Shonda Rhimes show Bridgerton, which is on Netflix right now. And for those of you who have watched the first two seasons, you're probably eager to uh, catch up with the third season. I couldn't tell you whether or not there is going to be a third season of Bridgerton, but given how popular the show is, there probably will be. But as I'm saying, like Bridgerton, Mr. Malcolm's List takes place in, well, I won't say Elizabethan England, but it takes place in England on the turn of the 19th century and is about aristocrats and the bourgeoisie and very much like Jane Austen stories. It's about relatively young people, although the actors are in their uh, mid to late thirties who are seeking uh, a mate (laughs) or someone who is wealthy and charming to with whom to live happily ever after. But like Bridgerton, Mr. Malcolm's list is made up of a diverse cast which I do not have a problem with. For example, the eligible bachelor in this film, Mr. Malcolm, uh, of the titular title, is played by a black British person by the name of Sope Derisu. And the woman who is after or wants to uh, court Mr. Malcolm is named Julia Thistlewaite, and she's played by a black British person by the name of Zawe Ashton. And they are initially together on a date to the theater. And it turns out that Julia Thistlewaite does not have too much in common with Mr. Malcolm, but she finds out from an acquaintance, Lord Cassidy, who is Mr. Malcolm's best friend and is played by Oliver Jackson Cohen, who is one of the few white people in this movie. And there's nothing wrong with that. But she finds out that Mr. Malcolm not only has particularly high standards, but he also actually made out a list. Hence the name of this movie, Mr. Malcolm's List. So Julia vindictively assigns her childhood friend, Selena, who comes from a more humble background, to woo Mr. Malcolm only to break his heart later on. And Selena is played by Frida Pinto, who is one of the most beautiful women in the world, as you might know from some of her other movies like Slumdog Millionaire or Rise of the Planet of the Apes, just to name a few. And the cast of this movie is not historically accurate because of the fact that it is a multi-diverse cast, which I absolutely applaud. I think everybody knows that the the fact that this cast is multiracial is not historically accurate, but we've seen so many films for so many decades that take place around this time where the cast is all white and also, in some cases, very bland. So it's good to see multiracial diversity portrayed on the screen, even if it isn't accurate. My problem with this movie was, actually, unlike Jane Austen, and I'm not the biggest fan of Jane Austen, but I have read her work, and I am appreciative of her standing in modern-day literature, and also the fact that it probably wasn't very easy for a woman to write the stories that she did around the time period that she did. But at least Jane Austen was original. And I feel like Mr. Malcolm's List is a very predictable kind of romantic comedy because you know that Frida Pinto is going to charm, excuse me, Frida Pinto is going to charm Sope Derisu, and they're going to have very good chemistry together. You also know that 
Mr. Malcolm is going to find out the ruse behind Selena vicariously through Julia about to break her heart. You know there's going to be a falling out, and you know that there's going to be some final solution in the end. And I felt like that romantic comedy trope was very predictable and not what it should have been. And I was very actually disappointed in that. I did think that just about everyone in this film acted very well. Of course, Frida Pinto is very charming and very lovely. I also really liked um, Zowie Ashton, and not only that, but she was also very funny and also not too sore on the eyes. There's also an Asian-American, or excuse me, an Asian friend of theirs whose name is Gertie Covington, and she's played by Ashley Park, and she is one of those characters that is... Very sociable, but to just about everyone outside of the bourgeoisie, she is very annoying. But I think that Ashley Park sold this comic relief very well. I think she's annoying, but also very fitting for the time period, for lack of a better term. And I also think there's another performance by a white actor named Theo James, which is very good. And he strikes up a sort of romantic courtship with one of the characters here, who I won't reveal, and it actually is probably one of the more surprising parts of the movie where Theo James comes in and begins a liaison, a genuine liaison with one of the other characters. But I think that the story structure of this being very predictable and almost seeming to be sort of a paint-by-numbers romantic comedy hindered the film a little bit. And I'm actually not faulting this film for being a ripoff of Jane Austen. If anything, there are things that uh, about Jane Austen stories that could use improvement, but also at the same time, the things that I have a problem with with Jane Austen stories also contributed to Jane Austen's universality, which is why her films are made in the turn of the 19th century context as well as modern adaptations, and those sometimes work, sometimes don't. Mr. Malcolm's List is a film that I did find charming at times, but the uh, the predictability of its story hindered it a bit, which is why I give Mr. Malcolm's List my rating of a checkout. I still thought that it had its moments, and some of the unexpected liaisons made this movie, I think, worth seeing. And also the acting by just about everyone involved was very on par. Uh, Frida Pinto is one of those actresses we haven't seen in a while. It's good to see her back. And this also might be the first step to making stars out of Sope Derisu and Zawi Ashton, amongst other such actors. So I do think that Mr. Malcolm's List is a film that could be perceived by men and women, but most especially women, as one of those guilty pleasures. But unlike other guilty pleasures like the Fifty Shades movie, Mr. Malcolm's List is not that bad. It's just not great. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is 
The Princess. This premiered on Hulu on July 1st and does not look like it's going to be leaving Hulu anytime soon. It's a movie that stars Joey King, and Joey King's name might not exactly be a household name yet, but Joey King is a relatively young actress. She's only 22 years old, but she's had quite the plethora of films in which she's acted so far. She's uh, best known, arguably, for being the lead, uh, Shelley Evans, better known as Elle, from the Kissing Booth films. And the Kissing Booth 2 is a film that I originally gave my rating of a knockout. And I am doing the rare deal where I feel like taking that rating back. But Joey King is a unique actress, and she certainly has a very unique look. She hasn't been in great films yet. For example, in addition to the Kissing Booth film, she's been in Independence Day Resurgence and Wish Upon, which were subpar films, but she's certainly has a unique look to her, and there's something also very striking about her as well. But The Princess is probably the film where I've been the most impressed with Joey King's acting. But that's about it. So this is a movie about a strong-willed princess who is played by Joey King, and she is just known as the princess in this film, and she refuses to wed a cruel sociopath, and because she refuses to wed this person, uh, who is of high royalty but very low morality, she is kidnapped and locked in a remote tower of her father's castle. But when her, with her vindictive suitor intent on taking her father's throne, the princess must save the kingdom. To this movie's credit, the princess in this film is not a princess in the pejorative sense. She is a little, literal princess in that her father is a king, but she is also very strong-willed, and thanks to some people who have trained her, including one woman named Mora, who's played by Olga Kurilenko, She is able to fend for herself, especially amongst this vindictive Lord's army. And the Lord, by the way, is named Julius, and he's played by an actor by the name of Dominic Cooper, who is very over the top, and his lines are particularly predictable. And I love the scenes where Joey King was acting, as well as the ones where she was fighting for herself, because... The choreography in this film is very good, and I also thought that Joey King does not just play an action hero who is a robot. She is very good at uh, fighting um, other men, um, (laughs) probably more than meets the eye, and I certainly wouldn't want to get into a fight with her. Not that I'd want to get into a fight with a woman anyway, but she also exudes a tiredness that you would expect from a human being, even a physically fit human being. And some of the ways she gets out of these rough situations are very clever and very well choreographed. However, just about everything else about this film, including the lead-up to the final fight, is very, very predictable, which prevents me from giving this movie a huge endorsement. But I did like Joey King in this film, and... The more I've seen her in films, the more I've actually been impressed by her. And The Princess is probably the most impressed I've seen, or the most impressive performance that Joey King has given so far. She kicks a**.
and she looks great doing it. But unfortunately, the rest of the movie is very, very predictable. And also, when it comes to the villains, it is very, very hammy, I think. And I think the movie might be considered so bad it's good, which I can certainly appreciate to a given degree. But I do think that when you have a a movie about a princess who can fend for herself and can be just as much of a warrior as the King's Knightsmen, I feel like this movie should have gone more for originality when it came to the villain of the film. Instead, the villain is very predictable, has terrible lines, and just doesn't really give this movie any sort of credibility. And I made a mistake earlier. Um, Mora is not the woman who trains uh, the princess. Mora is actually the right-hand woman of the spoiled lord. The woman who trains her is a woman named Lynn, who's voiced, who's voiced, who who's played by Veronica Nyo. And the scenes between her and Joey King are really fascinating. But unfortunately, the princess is should have been more memorable. And to Joey King's credit, she makes it more memorable than perhaps the rest of the film might have deserved. And for for the the sake that Joey King actually makes herself a, a really good action star here and has moments where she is certainly a credible action star, which I would not have predicted from the star of The Kissing Booth, I give The Princess my rating of a moderate checkout because I think that the movie for what it is is enjoyable. I think that it does work as somewhat of a turn your brain off and leave it by the door action film, but it could have been so much more. And I do think that it could just the fact that the princess can defend herself and be just as vicious as the men in the film does not automatically make it a feminist movie. It would have been a true feminist movie if the antagonist of the film was actually smarter. But I do think that was a missed opportunity for director Levon Kiet, as well as the writers Ben Lustig and Jake Thornton. But then again, I have seen worse action films, including worse action films with women as the lead and as the action star themselves. But Joey King saved this film, and I actually am looking forward to seeing Joey King in future projects. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. 
The next movie I'm going to be reviewing for you is Mad God. This is a film that I saw at the Belcourt Theater here in Nashville, Tennessee on June 29th, 2022. And lucky for me because that was the last day that the Belcourt Theater was showing this film. Now, it is actually um, available for viewing on Shudder and has been since June 16th, 2022. And Shudder is a video-on-demand service to which I don't subscribe. It was only founded back in 2015, and the owner of the uh, service is AMC. But I might check out Shudder from here on out, because Shudder's forte is horror films, and Mad God is a stop-motion, live-action, hybrid horror film. That's a lot to take in, but... It is amazing how this movie blends live action and stop motion animation. And make no mistake about it, even though this movie is stop motion animation, at least partly, it is not for children. Yeah, The Nightmare Before Christmas, this movie is not. I don't know what this movie is rated because I don't see that in my notes here. It may be unrated, but... It is a film that would probably give children nightmares. If they're scared by the night before Christmas, they may be traumatized by this film. But it is a movie that is directed by and written by Phil Tibbet. And if you don't know who Phil Tibbet is, he is an Oscar and Emmy award-winning visual effects supervisor and producer who specializes in creative design, creature design, stop motion, and computerized computer animation. He has assisted ILM, Industrial Light and Magic, and DreamWorks over his career, and he has worked on such films as the original Star Wars trilogy, Jurassic Park, and RoboCop. So... Back in 1993, Jurassic Park was nominated for a few Academy Awards. Most of them were in the sciences category. And Phil Tibbet was one of the innovators who won an Academy Award for Jurassic Park. And Mad God, for him, is a passion project for which he has reportedly been working for 30 years. Literally. And that's at least according to reports. So what is Mad God about? Honestly, it's very hard to tell. But it is a corroded diving bell. Um, excuse me. It's a film about an explorer that descends into what looks like hell by way of a corroded diving belt that descends amidst a ruined city, and the assassin, that's the main character of this film, emerges from it to explore a labyrinth of bizarre landscapes inhabited by freakish denizens. So. If you are envisioning what hell would look like, this movie would probably show you hell beyond its wildest imagination. It's a great place to visit, maybe, but you wouldn't want to live there, and you certainly would not want to die there. And the semblance of a story in this film comes from this character who is known as the assassin. You never see his face and you never hear him speak. As a matter of fact, this movie is largely without dialogue. You do hear human voices, but they're generally incoherent, or they're mainly screams. But some of the creatures you see in this film are quite nightmare-inducing, as well as some of the creatures that resemble humans that are largely disposable and expendable in this nightmarish universe. But I gotta say... 
I was entranced by Mad God. Half the time, I did not know what the hell I was watching. The other half of the time, I didn't quite know what this meant, what I was watching, and why these certain visuals were there. But the whole time, I was entranced. And so were the people in my screening room. There were only about 30 seats. There were about 15 people who were filling these seats. And one person walked out during the film. I don't think that person ever came back. And I can kind of understand why this film would turn people off. But I was still fascinated by the film. The main weakness of the story is that it doesn't really have a story. At first, you're following the assassin, but then eventually the assassin disappears and you're introduced to several other characters. And once the assassin disappears, the story kind of goes with it. And from there, it kind of felt like I was watching just random images. But I was still equally intrigued by the the film I was watching. And just a note for the rating of this film, um, I believe... Oh, I'm sorry. That... Scratch that. I I don't think this film is rated. Uh, if it if it were to be rated, I think it would be rated R, mainly for disturbing images. But I was taken in by this film. But with that said, do not let kids see this movie, especially if those kids are under the age of ten, because they will be traumatized for it. But Mad God, I thought was. Really, really great for what it was. It wasn't a perfect film, but I still give it my rating of a knockout because I think this demonstrates Phil Tibbetts' visionary as a filmmaker, arguably better than some of the other films on which he's worked. This has obviously been a passion project for him, and the effort that he has put into the hybrid of live action and animation is really impressive. And also... I would be willing to bet that Mad God is a a good entry into the Criterion Collection. I would love to see this movie on Blu-ray or 4K, especially 4K. This seems like the first bad movie that has earned its place on 4K. But this is ideal for the Criterion Collection for a number of reasons. It is unique. It took a long, long time to make. It was made by a movie industry veteran, and it is really, really weird. Most Criterion Collection movies meet all four of that criteria, no pun intended. And Mad God, I think, is a shoo-in for the Criterion Collection. And this is a movie that I would gladly see again, and particularly because I have the stomach for it. And maybe if I do see it again, I'll get maybe more of the symbolism or can probably extrapolate what Phil Tibbet was trying to convey from this movie. But Mad God is definitely a film for cinephiles and animation buffs. But mark my words, it is not for children. Keep children away from this until maybe they get older.
Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. And now that I've reviewed all the movies that I have to review for you for this show, it's now time for me to get into my next segment, which is What's Coming Up Next. This is a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to be released in theaters for the week of July 4th through July 8th, 2022, primarily the weekend of July 8th. And the first film, which is undoubtedly going to be the biggest film of next week, is a film that I actually think would have, could have, and probably should have been released this weekend. That movie, of course, is Thor, Love and Thunder. For if you've been um, watching movie previews, which I don't, but even if you have some idea of what's coming out in theaters, you have definitely seen a preview, unless you've been avoiding them, of this film. So Thor Love and Thunder is the fourth Thor movie with Chris Hemsworth as the titular character. It is the direct sequel to Thor Ragnarok, and it is the 29th film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But rest assured, even if this film sucks, which it might, but I'm not guaranteeing whether it's going to be good or bad, There are still going to be plenty of other Marvel Cinematic Universe films that are going to be coming out after it, including the next Black Panther movie, which is called Black uh, Panther Wakanda Forever. And I'm going to talk about that more towards November when I'm still doing my show. But in Thor Love and Thunder, Thor enlists the help of Valkyrie, Korg, and ex-girlfriend Jane Foster to fight Gore the God Butcher, who intends to make the gods extinct. This is very interesting. So Chris Hemsworth, of course, as I said, reprises his role as Thor. Tessa Thompson, who I love, by the way, reprises her role as um, Valkyrie, although now she's King Valkyrie, which is kind of interesting. I don't quite know where that's going. And Taika YTT, who directed the... Uh, Thor Ragnarok movie uh, comes back as Korg, or at least the voice of Korg. Also, Jane Foster was played by Natalie Portman in the first two Thor movies. She was absent from every other Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, including Thor Ragnarok, but here she makes a reappearance, and she is a lot more than the damsel in distress. Also appearing in this movie is... Uh, Gore, uh, who, the, the character who's played by Christian Bale, which is very interesting. He is Gore, the God butcher and Christian Bale, even though he makes a good hero, like in the dark Knight films, he makes an especially great villain as evidence from American psycho, where he was a very despicable and deplorable human being in Patrick Bateman, but he was so good at playing him. So I'm very eager to see Christian Bale as Gore. You also have Russell Crowe returning as Zeus and some other Marvel Cinematic Universe characters, including but not limited to Chris Pratt coming back as Peter Quill from Guardians of the Galaxy, Nebula played by Karen Gillan, Drax played by Dave Bautista, Bradley Cooper reprising his role as Rocket, Vin Diesel reprising his role as Groot, and several others. I don't want to get too carried away, but... Thor Love and Thunder is a film that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another film that is subject to being released in theaters on July 8th is a film that's called Marina. And Marina 
is an independent film that is directed by Antonetta Alamat Kusijanovic. Forgive me for uh, mispronouncing that name. She is a Yugoslavian, specifically a Croatian director. She's relatively young. She's only about 37 years old. And this movie is a, a film about a teenage girl who decides to replace her controlling father with his wealthy foreign friend during a weekend trip to the Adriatic Sea. The star of this film is a woman by the name of Grasija Filipovic. And she is also a young actress, but I don't know her age. But she sounds like she is either Croatian or Scandinavian. But she certainly is a woman who is very striking in her looks. Hopefully she is a good actress as well. If this movie is out in the theater near me, I will see it. I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. But also, what I should note is, not only was this movie the winner of the Camera Dior at, at this year's Cannes Film Festival, but one of its executive producers is Martin Scorsese. And if anybody knows great movies, it is Martin Scorsese. Granted, I don't think Martin Scorsese has ever directed a bad film, As a producer, I think all of his films has been, if not great, at least serviceable. But, again, Martin Scorsese is a cinephile. He knows more about films than I do, but then again, he is about 30 or 40 years older than me, so that is, of course, expected. Plus, while I am an amateur in the film industry, in other words, I'm a film industry outsider, he's definitely an insider. So... Marina is a film that I want to see. If it's out in theaters, I will definitely see it, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Welcome back to Words on Film, the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures. I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, continuing with my segment of what's coming up next. Although, before the break, I was discussing the films that were subject to being released in theaters. In the case of Thor Love and Thunder, that was the film that will definitely be released in theaters next week, unless something really catastrophic happens. Hopefully that doesn't happen, but I'm just saying, you know, hypothetically. But... Now it's time to give you a spoken word preview of movies that are subject to being released on streaming for the week of July 4th through July 8th, 2022. And honestly, there were no new films to come out on Netflix on Friday, July 1st. I was very surprised by that, but it actually had a long list of films that they were releasing that are really great films, including but not limited to Blue Jasmine, Boogie Nights, Catch Me If You Can, Deliverance, The Dirty Dozen, Goodfellas, Mean Girls, Natural Born Killers, and and others that may not be quite as great like Police Academy or Semi-Pro, just to name a few. But they are coming out with their first new films of the month on Friday, July 8th, 
One of their new films is Dangerous Liaisons, which you might think is a rather um, predictable, um, or you might have heard of the movie before. And it is true that Dangerous Liaisons was made into a film back in 1988, a great film at that. And that was a movie that starred John Malkovich, Glenn Close, and Michelle Pfeiffer, the former two of whom played terrible people and the latter of whom played somebody pure of heart. That was an excellent film, and it was also about very deplorable and despicable people. And it was based on a 1985 play of the same name by Christopher Hampton, which in and of itself was based on a novel written in 1782 by Pierre Choderlot de la Close. It's been adapted into other uh, films, or rather the, the story itself has been adapted into other things. Like, for example, there was a film that came out in 1999, uh, or 1998, excuse me, starring Sarah Michelle Gellar, Ryan Phillippe, and Reese Witherspoon. And I'm blanking on the name of the film, but it's based on Dangerous Liaisons. And that film in and of itself, some parts of it haven't stood the test of time very well, but others uh, certainly have. But this Dangerous Liaisons film is a film that is French and is directed by Rachel Suisa. And it is the same story as the 1988 film. However, it takes place in present day, unlike the 1988 film that was directed by Stephen Frears. It also has a multiracial cast. It is about a book smart girl named Celine, who is played by an actress by the name of, oh, come on, uh, Paola Locatelli, who I guess speaks French in this film, even though she has an Italian name, but she is a knockout, I got to tell I got to tell you. And she falls for bad boy Tristan at her new Biarritz High School, unaware she's part of a cruel bet he's made with social media queen Vanessa. So this is from the perspective of somebody that the uh, protagonist is trying to woo, not the other way around. And it takes place in present day with the advent of social media. And it also looks like this might be uh, considered a comedy in addition to being a sort of a romantic comedy drama about rich kids. But I'm very intrigued to see this, even though it is in a different language. Um, I'm not going to pronounce the French name of this film because I didn't take French in high school. But it's a film I will see, especially since, god damn, the actress who played Celine is gorgeous. And did I mention I absolutely love my girlfriend? (laughs) Just putting that out there. But that is a film that I will see, and I will let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is coming out on Netflix is a film that's called The Sea Beast. And of the four Netflix original films that are going to be coming out on Netflix, this one is the only one that is English-speaking. And this one stars Carl Urban, who plays Dr. McCoy in the new Star Trek movies, And it is actually not only an English-speaking film, it's also an animated film. And it's about a young girl who stows away on the ship of a legendary sea monster hunter where they launch an epic journey into uncharted waters and make history to boot. So this sea monster, according to the uh, poster, makes Moby Dick look like an anchovy. It is a very large and imposing monster. And this movie 
features the voice talents of many talented actors, including Carl Urban, as I said, Dan Stevens, Jared Harris, Emily O'Brien, and Marion Jean-Baptiste, amongst other people. There's also an actress who is a voice actor whose name is Kathy Burke. I have an aunt whose name used to be Kathy Burke, but she's not an actress, and that Kathy Burke is probably no relation to me, but I just thought I'd put that out there. But The Sea Beast is premiering on Netflix on July 8th. That is a film that I will see, and I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. Another movie that is premiering on Netflix is a movie that's called Incantation. And this movie is also of another language. And fortunately, I'm able to figure out something about this film. It is directed by a director named Kevin Coe. And usually the director of a movie will tell me what nationality this film is. And this movie, uh, rather the sites uh, that I'm visiting are not telling me that, but I presume that Kevin Coe, based on his name, is South Korean. But anyway, the film, uh, Incantation, is actually, the synopsis is a warning. So I'll read this warning right out loud. Warning, this is a cursed video. It might contain certain risks to watch. For those who dare to follow, please solve the puzzle of my daughter's curse with me. That tells me all I need to know to be intrigued. I'm not saying that I will necessarily see this film, but I am very, very intrigued, and I will try to see this film. If I don't see it for you next weekend, I'll try to see it the weekend after. And finally, the last film that is premiering on Netflix is another original film that is called Jewel. And let me see if I can find anything about this film. It's really hard to tell because uh, the the sites are not giving me any... Um, any information right now? Oh, actually, found it. Finally. Good God. I had to dig deep because I had to dig through all the other films that are uh, um, have Jewel in their name or even actors that have Jewel in their name, including the singer-songwriter of that name. So, unfortunately, even though I found the title of this film, there is no plot uh, that is given to me right here. All I can tell you is that it is directed by... Adze Uga, who I presume is African, but I don't know from what country. And the movie stars Michelle Boats, Connie Chiume, and Chris Juma. I don't know what this film is about, but it is a Netflix original, and I might see it for you next week. Who knows? But definitely The Sea Beast and Dangerous Liaisons would take precedence over this film, most definitely. So on Apple TV, there are actually not only no films that are premiering on Apple TV for July 4th through July 8th, there are no films premiering on Apple TV Plus this month, period. So that is going to be a platform that I'm going to skip, but I normally would anyway because there, there isn't, uh, I, I don't have a subscription to Apple TV Plus. On Disney Plus, there are no new films that are premiering on the week of July 4th to July 8th, other than a series premiere that premieres on July 4th that is called America the Beautiful. What it's about, I can kind of guess, but I don't exactly know for sure. But there won't be a movie premiering on Net, uh, excuse me, on Disney Plus until Friday, July 15th. But I will explain that movie uh, on next week's show on my segment, What's Coming Up Next. On HBO Max, 
The week of July 4th or July 8th, there are no new films premiering, just a couple of series, Miss S and The Visitors. And other than that, there have been a slew of movies that are, you know, not HBO Max or HBO Originals. I do have to say that the Bob's Burgers movie is coming out on Tuesday, July 12th on HBO Max. That movie didn't do especially well in theaters, which is too bad because I thought it was enjoyable. But thankfully, it's on HBO Max, so I can see it as many times as I want, as many times as I think I have time to see it. So now we have Hulu. And on Hulu, of course, there was one original film that premiered uh, on July 1st, and that was The Princess. On the week of July 4th through July 8th, there are actually no original Hulu films that are going to be premiering, but there is one film that will be making an appearance on Hulu on Friday, July 8th, and that movie is called Minimata, which sounds like a foreign film, which I presume that it is. And this is where I kind of wish I had done my homework because I have to kind of rush to tell you what this film is about, but it is premiering on Uh, Hulu on Friday, July 8th. I can't tell you any information about it. I might be able to see this movie for you next week, but given the precedence that the other movies that are premiering for this coming week take over this one, it's probably going to be a last on my list. But if I see it, I'll let you know what I think on next week's show. That just about does it for this episode of Words on Film. Words on Film is the spoken word show dedicated to moving pictures, and I am your host and movie critic, Dan Burke, reminding you that the views and opinions expressed on Words on Film about movies or other topics are solely those of your host and movie critic, Dan Burke. They do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of any employees or volunteers who are working at WBCA or the station as a whole. Until I watch a whole bunch of brand new movies, this is Dan Burke saying I'll see you at the movies.